Welcome to our weekend podcast. It is so good to be back with you this week after spending a week visiting family in Oklahoma. Um, we had such a great time. We were able to see family and friends, and uh, you know, I really appreciate our elders and staff for holding down the fort while we were gone. I especially want to thank Gary Hansen for stepping up to the plate and preaching his very first sermon last week. I'm really grateful that he was able to do that. If you have a Bible with you today, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of James, chapter 1. James is a shorter New Testament book that's located towards the back of your Bible. It's between Hebrews and 1 Peter. So if you have a physical Bible, you can uh, flip to that part of your your Bible, and then you can also use the YouVersion Bible app on your tablet or your phone. Man, I am so excited because over the next six weeks, we're going to be spending the bulk of our time focusing in on some of the main themes that are found in this incredible book. To help all of us get on the same page, I'd like to paint a word picture and ask a couple of questions that will help us understand what this book is all about. Did you know that every carpenter and every construction worker has one primary tool that they use more than any other tool? In fact, they use this tool several times a day, and they'd be lost without it. Now, this tool doesn't require batteries. It's not sharp like a saw or a knife. And it requires very little effort to use, so it's, it's my kind of tool for sure. Well, think about the kind of tool that, uh, that I'm describing. I'll give you just a second to see if you can come up with the answer to what this kind of tool is. Well, this tool is a tape measure. It's a tape measure. I'm not a carpenter, and I don't work construction, but I've known several carpenters and construction workers over the years, and I can tell you with absolute certainty that they wouldn't be able to do their job successfully without this simple tool. You see, whether it's building furniture or framing a house without a tape measure of some kind, they wouldn't be able to make exact cuts. I mean, sure, they could estimate and make cuts that might be acceptable when the project is finished, but it would never be exact. To build anything with any kind of precision requires some type of measuring tool like a tape measure. Did you know that God works like a carpenter or a construction worker in our lives? You see, right now, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, he's actively building you into the person he's created you to be. The Apostle Paul um, highlights this awesome truth in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He said, So all of us who've had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. So as you learn from Jesus to live like Jesus, God is actively at work in your life, building you into the person he's created you to be. There's a theological word for this process, and it's the word sanctification. Um, sanctification is an older word. We, we don't use it as often anymore, but it's an important word. Sanctification means separated or set apart. Really, it's a continuing change worked by God in us, freeing us from sin and forming us more into the image of Jesus. Now, it's important to understand that sanctification is a lifelong process of God working in and through the life of the Christian. I've also heard this process referred to as Christ formation. I really like this phrase because I think it highlights the main goal of God's work in our lives. 
You see, God's main goal in all of our lives is for us to be transformed more and more into the image of his son. And friends, that's what sanctification or Christ formation is all about. That slowly over time, we begin to think more like Jesus. We begin to see things as Jesus would see them. And we learn to live more like Jesus. So here's an important question for all of us to consider today. If God wants us to become more and more like Jesus, how does this happen? Well, the simple answer is Scripture. You see, God uses Scripture as a tape measure for the Christ formation process in our lives. The Apostle Paul highlights this truth for us in Romans 12, verse 2. He says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So when Paul tells us to not conform to the pattern of this world, he's actually assuming that we are conforming, and he's commanding us to stop. The phrase, be transformed, is an imperative in the original Greek. And that just means that it's a command. It's not a suggestion. Now, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for Paul to command us to do something that we couldn't do, right? Of course not. And that's why he gives us something that we can do that helps facilitate this Christ formation process. What are we able to do? We can read, study, meditate on, memorize, and apply God's word to our daily lives. Think of it like this. Reading and applying God's word to our daily lives is a lot like going to the gym and working out. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I have to confess something today. I haven't gone to the gym in quite a while. (laughs) I just haven't done it. My wife is great at it. She's uh, disciplined in that. She really doesn't miss a beat. But I've kind of gotten off the beaten path for a while now. (laughs) When you read God's word and apply God's truths to your life, um, you're getting in some much-needed spiritual exercise. It's a lot like going to the gym. We actually see this analogy over and over again throughout God's word. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verses 7 through 8, the Apostle Paul wrote to a young pastor, and this is what he said. Do not waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, train yourself to be godly. He says, physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. The word train in verse 7 is the Greek word gymnasia which is where we get our English word, gymnasium. So Paul is telling Timothy, he's saying, train yourself spiritually. The implication is that spiritual exercise will help grow Timothy's faith. He goes on to say in verse 8 that physical training is good. He's saying, don't neglect that. Physical training is good. Our bodies need that. You know, I need to stop neglecting that. He said, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. So Paul's encouraging us to get into the habit of spiritual exercise because that's what will help us in this life and in the life to come. The kind of spiritual exercise that he's talking about is certainly reading and applying God's word to our lives, but it doesn't stop there. It also includes prayer, fasting, serving God with the gifts that he's given us, and a host of other things. But it's important that we understand the primary activity for transforming the mind, as Romans 12.2 says, is spending time in the Word of God and applying what we learn to our daily lives. Friends, if you want to become more like Jesus, spend time reading, 
studying, meditating on, memorizing, and applying God's word to your life. You see, when you begin to take the initiative for this Christ formation process in your own life, you'll see the results that spiritual training brings. So what does all of this have to do with the book of James? Here it is. The central theme for the book of James is spiritual growth. It's maturity. It's growing up in the faith. God wants all of us to grow in our faith, and James tells us how to do it. In fact, about half of all the verses in his letter contain verbs in the imperative form. So these are not options. They're not suggestions or or simply good ideas. They're commands and requirements for effective Christian living. And what's great is that all of these commands are extremely practical. And that's why we're calling this series a practical guide for Christian living. Here are just a few verses that really stand out and highlight what I'm talking about. James chapter 1, verse 2, it says, When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. James chapter 1, verse 22 says, But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. He's saying, don't just, don't just listen to the word. Also, don't just read the word. You have to do what it says. You have to apply it to your own life. James chapter 2, verse 1 says, Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. James 4, verse 7, it says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I love this verse because it's a command that also includes a promise. He's saying, do these things, and then here's the promise behind that. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Again, another command that includes a promise. I'll share one more with you. James 5 verse 7 says, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. So beginning next week, we'll focus in on one chapter each week. And as we do, I'm going to highlight some of the main themes throughout the book. While many of the truths that we'll unpack will be practical, they'll also be challenging and potentially painful. You see, you're going to be challenged to examine your own life against the Word of God and to submit to God's leading and direction in all areas. I believe that God wants to use this series to grow your faith. I truly believe that. But I have to remind you that sometimes growth can be painful. And what do we like to say about growth? We say that all healthy things grow and all growing things change. You see, when we truly experience new life in Christ, we'll continue to grow. And that growth will produce healthy change in our own lives and in the life of the church. Growth and change can often be uncomfortable. Friends, that's how you know you're following the Lord. Regardless of where you're at in your faith journey, so whether you're a new believer, a mature believer, or someone who's somewhere in between, James will tell you how to grow in your faith. I preach messages that are more topical in nature, like messages that focus on parenting, messages that focus on prayer, or how to share your faith. I also preach messages that are seasonal, like around Christmas and and Easter. And uh, I love to do message series that go through complete books of the Bible, just like what we're doing with this series. Starting a new series on a book of the Bible is a lot like preparing for a trip. So before we left to go to Oklahoma just a few weeks ago, my wife and I wanted to know 
um, exactly where we'd be staying. So what hotel are we going to stay at on the way? Whose house are we going to stay at once we arrive? And we also wanted to know where we'd be staying. You know, we wanted to get the most out of the time that we had. And I think most importantly, we wanted to know what restaurants we were going to stop and eat at along the way, right? That's the most important thing. <laughs> when it comes to taking a family trip, we're definitely planners. For us, this tends to make the trip a lot more enjoyable because we know where to go and how to find what it is we're looking for. I think the best way for us to begin a new series on the book of James, is to do some pre-trip planning. And we can do this by answering four important questions. The first question we're going to look at is this, who was James? So who is the author? Question number two, who was James writing to? Who was the original audience? Question number three, why did James write his letter? So what's the, the overall purpose of the letter? We've already talked about that a little bit. And number four, how can I get the most out of this series? So we'll give you some practical application at the end of the message today. So question number one, who was James? Um, I want to draw your attention to James chapter one and the first half of verse one. This is what we read. This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So like many of the New Testament letters, the author of James introduces himself by name. In fact, there are several men with the same name in the New Testament. I want to give you uh, four of those that we see. The first one is James, the son of Zebedee and the brother of John. Um, This James is one of the most well-known Jameses in all of the New Testament. We know that he was a fisherman by trade, and he was called by Jesus to follow and become a disciple. He and his brother John were nicknamed by Jesus as the sons of thunder, because they were impulsive and they kind of had a hot temper. (laughs) This James was the first of the disciples to give his life for Christ. Um, He was killed by Herod in AD 44. Um, But we know that he's not the author of this book. The second James that I want to talk about is James, the son of Alphaeus. Um, This James was also a disciple of Jesus. He's mentioned uh, when the disciples are all mentioned together in a list. And I think we actually have four lists that that name all the disciples throughout the New Testament. Um, But other than that, we really don't know a whole lot about him. Um, Now, Matthew, or Levi, the former tax collector, he's also identified as the son of Alphaeus. So it's extremely likely, it's possible that the two could have been brothers. But there's no indication that this is the James who wrote the letter that we're about to study. Then you have James, the father of Judas, the disciple. Um, This James is only mentioned one time in one verse, and that's Luke chapter 6, verse 16. In this verse, Judas was called the son of James uh, to distinguish him from Judas Iscariot. So just like we have a lot of Jameses, there's a couple of Judases. And this particular Judas was called the son of James to help distinguish him from this other individual. And we know this most certainly was not the man who wrote the book of James. So that leaves us with one other option, and that is James, the, the brother of Jesus. Now, most theologians and most historians agree that this is the James um, who authored this letter. Now, there are several New Testament verses that point out that Jesus uh, had brothers and sisters. One of the clearest is Matthew 13, 55 through 56, which says, Then they scoffed, He's just the carpenter's son, and we know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. All of his sisters live right here among us. Where did he learn all these things? 
Now, if we wanted to be as accurate as possible, we refer to this James as the half-brother of Jesus because we know that Joseph was not Jesus' biological father since Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. James and Jesus' other siblings did not believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry. They did not believe that he was the Messiah during this time. Yet, we find them in the upper room praying with the other disciples in Acts chapter 1. Now, I believe that James went from unbelief to faith after Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection. And we read about this resurrection appearance in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This would have absolutely convinced James that Jesus truly is the Messiah. And in turn, James lived the rest of his life sharing Jesus with others. We know that he went on to become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul even referred to James as a pillar of the church in Galatians chapter 2. James was an active and effective follower of Jesus, that is, until he was martyred. Now, we have no record in the Bible, so understand that. But tradition tells us that he was martyred in A.D. 62. The story that's been passed down is that the Pharisees in Jerusalem had him thrown off of the temple and then beaten to death with clubs in the street. The story also tells us that James prayed the same words of Jesus while he was being killed. So while he was being martyred, he he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. James was a Jew who would have been trained in the law of Moses. We believe that he was also a man of prayer, so much so that people say his knees were as hard as a camel's. Even though he was an unbeliever during Jesus' ministry, We think he paid close attention to what Jesus said and did. And we know this because in his letter there are several things that allude to things that Jesus said specifically from the Sermon on the Mount. Now while there's so much more that could be shared about who James is and about his life, I just want you to recognize that most theologians and historians agree that this is the James who authored the New Testament book of James. And that leads us to our second question, Who was James writing to? So who is the original audience? And what does that have to do with our lives today? Let's look at the second half of the very first verse in James. So James 1 verse 1 says, I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings. So we know that James wrote to Jewish Christians who'd been scattered outside of Jerusalem because of persecution. We also know that they were Christians because James addressed them in this way several times throughout his letter. I want to draw your attention to a specific word in this verse. It's a very important word, and that is the word scattered. In the Greek, this word is a phrase that means in the dispersion. Now, the term, the dispersion, was used to identify the Jews who were living outside of Jerusalem during this time. This original Greek phrase carries with it the idea of scattering seed. And this is where I think this gets really cool. So track with me for just a moment. You see, when Jewish Christians were forced to scatter because of persecution, this was a result of them being persecuted for their faith, God was able to bring good out of a very bad situation by using these believers to share their faith with others. So they were able to sow seeds of faith in a lot of places. And God helped those seeds grow and bear fruit. You know, their experience, their story kind of puts a whole new perspective on suffering. Right? When we go through difficult seasons, it shows us how we can think about that. 
It reminds me of Romans 8, 28. It says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Now, it also makes complete sense that James would begin his letter with these words in verse 2. So I'm going to go ahead and share this verse with you, and we're going to unpack this next week. But James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Well, nobody wants to face persecution for their faith. Well, no one wants trouble in their life. James was writing to a group who could learn to see things from a different perspective, who could learn to see things from God's perspective. And throughout his letter, James encourages believers to live faithfully, even when others won't, even when times are tough. That leads us to the third question. Why did James write his letter? So what's the purpose? Every New Testament letter has its own special theme and purpose. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans to help prepare the Roman Christians for his intended visit. Paul wrote 1 and 2 Corinthians to help identify some of the problems that had arisen in the Corinthian church and to offer godly wisdom and solutions and to teach believers how to live for Christ in a very difficult and corrupt society. So why did James write his letter? He wrote his letter to teach right Christian living and to help believers grow in their faith, to grow in maturity. As we read through this letter over the next several weeks, we're going to learn that the Jewish Christians to whom Jesus wrote were having some major, major problems of their own. For one thing, they were going through a very difficult season of testing. They also struggled with specific sins in the church. Some of the believers were catering only to the rich, while others were competing for different roles in the church, particularly teaching roles. And one of the biggest problems in the church was Christians not living out what they said they believed. So there was hypocrisy in the church. The tongue, the words that people were saying, were also causing division where there should have been unity. As we'll see, the issues that James addressed are also extremely applicable to what we face in the church today and in our own lives. All of these issues fall under the umbrella of spiritual maturity or spiritual growth. And that's really what James is passing on to all believers, that God wants us to grow up in the faith. He wants us to mature, growing more and more into the image of Jesus. So within each chapter, you're going to see that there are important marks of the mature believer. Marks that help us measure our spiritual growth, kind of like a tape measure. That leads us to the fourth question for today. How can I get the most out of this series? How can I get the most out of this study? Well, since the overarching theme of James is spiritual growth, I'd like to give you four things that will help you prepare for this series. Number one, I want to encourage you to read through the book of James on your own and with your church family. Now, you don't have a bulletin since you're online listening to the podcast, but in the bulletin this week, I've included a reading guide that will take people through James. So if you'll start on Monday morning and you'll read one chapter each day, there's only five chapters, you'll have finished the book of James by Friday and leading into the weekend. I want to encourage you to take your time as you read. You know, as you read through a chapter, um, you might need to stop and slow down. You might need to reread, um, but take your time. The second thing I want to encourage you to do um, is to pray for your own spiritual growth 
and for your church family. Remember, prayer is a gift. It's a partnership with God. Prayer is simply having a conversation with God like you would your best friend. I think one of the best prayers that you can pray, especially if you don't know what to pray, is to simply pray the word of God. So as you read through James, pray about the things that you're reading. Again, pray for your own spiritual growth and for your church family. Number three, put on the full armor of God. Put on the full armor of God. I want to remind you of something very important today, and that is this. Whenever we get serious about spiritual growth, the enemy gets serious about opposing us. Let me say that again. Whenever we get serious about spiritual growth, the enemy gets serious about opposing us. You see, if you're asking God to grow your faith in a specific area, you need to be prepared to experience opposition from the enemy. So what can you do? Well, put on the full armor of God. I want to encourage you to pair Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, with our reading through the book of James. All right, this is where we learn about putting on the full armor of God. You can read this, uh, read James, and ask God to help you put on all the armor that you'll need for the next several weeks. So put on the full armor of God. The fourth and final thing that you can do is this. Trust that God is in control. Trust that God is in control and that he has a plan for your life. Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10 says, Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. Friends, God wants to get a hold of your life in a big way over the next several weeks. Be open to his leading. Remember his goodness and faithfulness. Trust that he's in control. Trust that he has a plan.